You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to What Load of Cobblers, the original Cobblers fanzine reborn in podcast form. I'm Tom Reed, and today I'm talking to a player who played under five Cobblers managers. The best header of the ball I've ever seen. And star of that night at Liverpool, it's Andy Holt. Hello, Andy. How are you doing? You okay? Yeah, very well. I've just been um, looking over that video of that night at Liverpool, and it's still, I still can't believe how you did it and how it was done. But it was still a brilliant night, probably one of the highlights of your career, mustn't it? Yeah, absolutely. It was just, I think everything around the whole occasion was just so, so surreal. Even the way we beat Reading in the round before, the, you look at how that game panned out, and we obviously went to extra time at Reading and it was we were two on down last minute of extra time and I remember Shane Long being put through and he was quick and I was playing centre half and I've gone to chase him and I've literally brought him down it was I didn't mean to but it was a definite penalty and the ball's been kicked out for a goal kick and the rest kind of looked at his watch and said play on and I was like I think he's just doing me a bit of a favour there we then kicked it up the field uh, and then scored the equaliser then beat him on penalties which led in us getting Liverpool in the next round which is just Crazy, really. Staggering. And um, at the time, and even probably up to this day, the League Cup is a competition we actually pretty fancied quite well. And um, it was just one of those nights where it all came together and just one of those real cup cup classics for, for cobblers. But before we get into that, um, we like to talk uh, about uh, our interviewees, their, their whole career. And you've had a, you had a rich and varied career, which I believe started at Oldham. That's right, isn't it? Yeah, it did, yeah. Um, started off at Oldham when I was 14 um, on the schoolboys, and I was just a case of training once a week and playing at, at weekends. And then when I finished school and my GCSEs, I went on to do uh, a YTS there for two years. Yeah, and you're, you're, a, you're a Stockport lad, um, obviously the Manchester area. Uh, you said that um, you had to get the bus over to Oldham, didn't you? It took, took you a while on the bus. Just show my age a little bit here. The M60 Ring Bro, which is now complete, it didn't open until I think 1999. So from 96 onwards, uh, I couldn't obviously drive because I was 16, 17 years old. Um, and I used to get the bus, which I think is only 10 miles on the motorway, but it used to take me an hour and a half. I had to get one bus into Ashton or, and then from Ashton down to Oldham. So, yeah, it was a bit different in the, those days. Yeah, um, and w- those days were the sort of days where did you have to like clean the the pros' boots and all that sort of stuff? The, the real yeah, absolutely it, it, work. It's one of those that you look back at and it, it was just the norm then, and now you look at it and go, I think kids are a little bit spoiled. And I know I sound exactly as my parents would be saying exactly the same thing, but 
we had to get in at eight o'clock every morning. We had to clean the changing rooms, clean the shower areas, clean the toilets, sort the kit yeah. out. Yeah. Uh, you had your pro or a couple of pros where you had to clean their boots, um, make sure they had the, the dubbing on or the polish on and make sure when they came in at nine, half nine, whatever it was, their kit was laid in their place with their boots there. And then we'd end up after training, we'd clear up all the kit, uh, take it down to the laundry room. Uh, we'd have to clean the physio room and then we'd leave at about five o'clock. So it was a little a long bit day. Yeah, a long day. Uh, a little bit different, you know. I, I don't think we was on uh, national minimum wage, but you didn't care. It was just one of those. You'd, you'd do what you needed to, and it kind of taught you a discipline. Um, so you knew that if you were going to be in on time, if you're going to be late, you were going to get fined. And that kind of went through the whole career. And that's where, even with first teams, they would have uh, fines where if you were late or if you didn't wear the correct attire or anything, yeah. it kind of taught you a little bit of discipline. So whose uh, boots did you clean in those days? Do you remember? I cleaned Nicky Henry's. Um, he was the captain at Oldham at the time. Um, okay. I remember the first year Man United won the Premier League in 92-93 season when it was first the Premier League. Nicky Henry scored the goal against Aston Villa uh, at their place, which stopped Villa winning the league and helped Man United win it. So, yeah, he was, okay. he was great. But I remember at Christmas he, get, he gave me £30 as a tip uh, for cleaning his boots and I thought I'd won the lottery. It was brilliant. Oh, that's, that's pretty good, isn't it? And uh, were there certain players uh, whose boots were dirtier than others, ones that did a bit more work? <laughs> Some of them not touched at all by them, man. They just skipped around. <laughs> yeah, it's one of those, again, It was it, it, you were frightened to death of the first-team players when you were 16 years old. These were big, experienced players, um, you know, like Sir John Hall with Andy Ritchie, Graham Sharp, people like that, Ian uh, Gonsaldin, um, who you wouldn't mess with um, because no. if you went in there into the first team dressing rooms, which was nerve wracking enough as it was with dirty boots, you would literally get bombarded. So it wasn't worth your time. So it was one of those where you would clean them properly. Uh, and again, even making sure they were on the skip for the coach when they went on the overnight trips or when they had football games. Um, it was yep. quite serious. You had to do your job properly or you would get a bit of a hiding. But a good grounding in, I think, uh, putting a, an ethos that you're earning your place at the football club and you're earning it. When you get into the first team, you've earned it as a young guy I think that's absolutely yeah and it's it's one of those that you kind of you strive towards when you're 16 years old you you think and I don't know if there's an expectation that you're just going to play football because that's all you've been used to in your short life already everything involved in your life was all around football um, and I remember I was on £27.50 a week um, and I had £10 for my bus fare which covered my trips to and from home um, yeah uh, like I said, I had to stay in digs as well. So I stayed with a, a lovely elderly couple uh, a couple of miles outside Oldham. So I didn't have to commute from Stockport every day. Uh, and again, it just it taught you, first of all, moving away from home at such a young age. Um, you yeah. have to be a bit independent. But again, with regards to the training and everything you did, it was kind of geared towards being in that first team because you wanted to be in that dressing room. You wanted someone to clean your boots and you wanted to give someone else a bit of grief and keep them on the toes, but also try and teach them a bit of discipline. So it was a, a very good learning curve. Yeah. Do you remember your first time you were called up to the first team and what that's what that was like? Um, I think the first time I went on a few um, away trips where it was when Neil Warnock was in charge and he would take a few of the younger kids on the coach with him just for the experience which I look back which is brilliant um, um to be fair I think it was I was just shy just about to turn 18 when I made my debut but one of the 
other YTSs was 16 when he made his debut. Uh, he was Scott McNiven, so I think he was one of the youngest to make a debut at that age. And he played. He probably played 50 games by the time I played, which was crazy, really, because he, he would still do the cleaning of the boots of his pro and his <laughs> pro, but he was thrown into the team at such a young age. But like I said, we had a really good coach with a, a gentleman called Billy Ermson, who was probably five foot three, five foot four. And just, he absolutely scared the life out of me. He used to hammer me every day um, and really have a go at me. And I, he just screamed at me and I was like, oh, I just wanted to give me a break. I, I don't understand it. Um, and then one of the one day he pulled me in and he said, do you know why I have a go at you all the time? And I was going, no, genuinely, I don't. I don't enjoy it. He went, because I love you. And I was like, what? He went, if I didn't think you could do more, I just wouldn't even say a word to you. And then suddenly, suddenly this penny dropped. And I've, I've realised for the rest of since then that I do need a bit of a rocket to get, yeah. me, get me wound up and I see it in my son when I see him play now I know sometimes he gets a bit lethargic and he does need a bit of a, a telling to get going so I, I, I appreciated that I didn't understand it at the time but yeah. back I thought I need to run through brick walls every day to get myself yeah. so he taught me again a very valuable lesson so you, you had the, the coach sort of in your ear every day, but then you also had Neil Warnock, uh, you know, the fairly legendary figure to give you a secondary uh, rollicking if he needed it. Can you tell us a bit about legendary Neil Warnock and what he was like in those days? Yeah, so, so Billy was my youth team coach. So when I did make the step up to the first team, um, I remember it was, I think it was, I actually made my debut the, the last game of the season in the championship when Oldham got relegated. Um, mm. I came on, um, against Reading for the last 11-12 minutes um, and I remember yeah. just being sat in the dressing room and obviously all the senior pros who had been pros for years and years they were obviously really hurt and I was kind of confused going I've just made my debut there's I don't know how many was in the crowd but there was a, thousands there obviously um, and I was going it's kind of a surreal feeling I remember Andy Ritchie coming up to me and he just said, listen, you know, you did well today. You, it was only a, a short period of time, but this is what you did well. Here's what you could work on. And I just yeah. thought, again, at the time you don't realise, but looking back, um, and I'm like, I'm still in touch with Andy. He's a great guy, good golfer as well. A bit too good for my liking, but just remembering him taking the time out to speak to a 17-year-old kid who yeah. maybe, when they got relegated sticks with you or stuck with me for my lifetime so it's little things like that were but yeah Neil Warnock was um I'm trying to think of the best phrase to sum him up and he, he just <laughs> was, excuse me he was just a character uh, yeah. in a way that he, he was very superstitious there'd be games where he would make us have a shot of brandy or something with a raw egg in it before we went out <laughs> crazy and but he had so many weird things that he'd do as well he, he used to and I've like I've seen clips on it on, on YouTube or Facebook where if at half time he'd, he'd walk straight through the changing rooms into the shower area and he'd just stand there with a cup of tea and we're all going what is he doing so we're just talking amongst ourselves and if we're losing we're like maybe he's you know just staying calm and then he'd sit <laughs> and then he'd come back in and just launch an attack on everyone and he was just <laughs> honestly it, it, it's like you were letting down a member of the family it, the disappointment in his face was incredible but you knew yeah. why he was doing it he was trying to get a reaction trying to get you going and and more than not it did work but yeah he was a 
funny guy. He was. And didn't, of... uh, sometimes uh, when he was giving you this dressing down, he was actually dressed down himself. He used to do it in his underpants, didn't he? Sometimes. Honestly, I'd, again, when I was saying it might be superstitious, he had these Y fronts that. I mean, I don't think they'd look good on David Beckham, to be honest. They were, <laughs> they were very questionable, to say the least. But after the game, he'd be getting undressed, and you could see he was just angry and fuming, and he'd be muttering stuff to himself. And then he'd just stand up right in front of you and start having a go at you. And I'm like, this is weird. <laughs> I understand you're giving me a bit of a rollicking, but come put a towel on or something. <laughs> That was probably his way of saying, look, I don't care what I look like, what I care what, I care what I'm dressed like, you're going to, you, you know, just yeah. uh, yeah, what I've got to say. And I'm, I'm the main man, really. Exactly. He had to get it off his chest and he would do it whenever, however he wanted. Um, like, he was a very good man manager. So if you did well, you won a game, he'd go, listen, lads, have Monday off, um, have an extra day off, or train Tuesday, have Wednesday off, then train Thursday, Friday. But often he'd be a case where we'd play a game and then, he would go to his home in Plymouth um, yeah. and, and through the week it would be his coaches that trained us and then on a Thursday halfway through training his car would pull up on the training ground he'd just walk out let his dog go out and the dog would run on the pitch and then he'd go right lads let's do some set pieces <laughs> uh, and he, that's just the way he worked and it, it must have worked because he, he had a, obviously a fantastic career after all of them so yeah he was a, an interesting character. Yeah, and I think maybe a typical of that type of manager that literally just did manage. So he wouldn't be out on the training pitch every second of every day like a lot of modern coaches are. He would trust the, the work to his coach and do the stuff that he considered to be important. And um, yeah. there's quite a few managers like that. I think Clotty's probably like that. Yeah, it's, a, it's a lot more technical now, a lot different, a lot based on diet and um, nutrition, etc. where they bring in special people for that. But the likes of Harry Redknapp, people spoke about him being a good man manager. This was what Neil wanted was. He wasn't one who was going to be on the training ground doing different routines and things like that. He would do what he needed to. But he had his coaches who knew exactly how he worked and had worked with him in the past. So yeah. he knew the message he wanted to get over on a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, whatever it needs to be. And then he yeah. would be the main man and say, listen, I'm in charge of the game. I'm the manager. Here's how we're playing. Yeah. Here's who we're against. And this is your job. So it seemed to work. Did uh, were, you, were, you, were you careful of your diet in those days? Or was it more like with those days where you had a steak and chips and all that sort of stuff? Um, I think it was still always the case that before games, if you'd met up, you would have your... Um, pasta your potatoes your beans etc uh, but other than that the, the diet was not really seen upon as being important which no i suppose you look back as a little bit crazy now the way we live and the, the world we live in football wise and how fit everyone is and i think where the game has changed for the better in nutrition it's also lost a bit of the personal touch so when yeah. i was them, it was <clears throat> It was a lads who got on together. We didn't have iPhones. We didn't have iPads or laptops or anything. Yeah. So we'd do everything together. We'd on a Tuesday we'd we'd have a you know, finished training. Then we'd go for a few pints and a game of snooker. Uh, just things together. And after games we would go into the players' bar. We'd we'd mix with the opposition. We'd have a pint with them. Um, and then we'd get on the coach and play cards. And whereas yeah. the diet wasn't the focus. <clears throat> whereas by the time I finished. The diet was pretty much spot on. You was having your nutritional shakes, your protein shakes, whatever it needs to be. You would have been fed at the club through the week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, or whenever you needed meals, before games, everything about your diet was right. I suppose the only luxury we were, we were afforded were 
was after a game where we'd have a pizza or something because you need to obviously replace get the energy the, back on. Yeah, yeah so pizza is a easy way to do that. But even then, it, by the time I'd finished my career, we wouldn't go anywhere near a players' bar or speak to the opposition or. So like even the way. fans, like you know, uh, I've spoken to a few of the uh, a few ex Cobblers players, and a lot of them are, are commenting on the the disconnect that's come with probably the the ultra professional age that people like Arsene Wenger brought in. That there's now more of a disconnect between the fans and the the players, and just through the game, really, like you say, the the individual touch. I think yeah, uh, I think it goes, it goes a long, long way, and like I said, it's it's not that I've fallen out with love, but I do understand the disconnect because I've been a party to both sides of it and I understand yeah. when it was a case I remember when I was at Oldham and I think I was it was 99 so I'd have been 21 years old and we'd beat Man City at Main Road and I remember yeah. driving back to Oldham Athletic Ground and at the bottom of the road there was a pub called the Clayton Arms and when we returned from Main Road there was probably 1500 fans there to cheer us just because the fact we beat Man City yeah, and then massive. we got out there off the bus and we went into the Clayton Arms with the fans and we had a drink with them because yeah. that's what you did it was it, we're yeah. celebrating with them we're as happy as they are whereas like I said I think it's a, a little bit different now you look at I suppose as good as the game is now all yeah. the superstars aren't really portraying what you'd want to teach your kids so what that's little things yeah. yeah that drive me mental when I put Sky on and I see them getting off the coach with the headphones in I feel yeah. like a school teacher going listen they're, and they're just ignoring the ball boys or the fans or whoever yeah I was a manager I'd say just take your headphones off it's 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 literally a 30 second walk say hello yeah. act like a human being make yourself approachable and it, yeah that disconnect could change very quickly but again the, it's just the modern world we live in I suppose yeah, yeah. Uh, with this um, sort of modern era of football, there's obviously real quite big advances in in technique of sort of the average player. I'd say I, I wouldn't say the game's any more entertaining or any more more of a connection between everyone. Like I said, but um, I guess it is what it is. Let's let's get back to your career in terms of you had a good time at Oldham, over a hundred appearances or about around a hundred appearances. Uh, you. You got sold to Hull City. Yeah. Um, that were what league? They were in. The, the divisions were different in those days, weren't they? But what division were you in then? Uh, I what, think as it is now, it was League Two. So Oldham were in League One, but were in some financial difficulties. Um, yeah. It said about selling me. So I remember my agent ringing me saying, "I've got Aberdeen on the phone and Hull on the phone. Who want to take you on loan?" Um, yeah. And I remember Hull were, like I said, in League Two. They were in massive financial trouble but had just been bought out so I was the first person who went there on loan yeah um, Brian Little was the manager he was just an absolute gentleman a, a lovely lovely guy um, and I remember the few, first few days of training it was it was good and the, the lads were rough and ready and proper old school footballers yeah uh, but the, I was saying that Oldham would be in league one and probably get four or five thousand whereas I made my debut for Hull um, at Boothwood Park, the old stadium, we played Exeter at home, so I didn't expect there to be much of a crowd, and it was sixteen thousand. Yeah, in Hull, they're mad for their football. Have you walk anywhere in Hull, you would get recognised. So it was, uh, it, it was just, it is such a massive city, and obviously they've gone on to do so well over the last ten, fifteen years, which is, which is great. 
Yeah, you've talked about Brian Little and uh, I spoke to Gary Thompson, the former Cobra striker who played for Villa back in the uh, 80s. He, his hero was uh, Brian Little. I think he played for Villa as well. And it just, yeah. it just from what I've heard about him, it seems like a bit of a, an old school sort of gentleman in football um, that wanted you to play your own game, I guess. Yeah, he, he, he was the calmest man ever. Like I said, in the team, you had players like John Whitney and Gary Brabin, who were big, big guys. And I mean, Gary Brabin used to be a, a bouncer in, in Stockport. He was so muscly. He was ripped and he was an animal playing against him, playing in training. He was like Bale. He was like, yeah. you, could, you could not get, he was so strong. And he was, a, he was a voice as well. He was very outspoken. And these kind of guys would come in at half-time and start screaming and raving and headbutting walls and all the ridiculous things you'd expect from these guys. Yeah. And then as soon as Brian Little walked in, nobody said anything. It all went quiet. And that was just the re- respect he had, which he deserved. And he just used to say things like, listen, don't be embarrassed by nil-nil. It's fine. I know we're playing in front of a big crowd, but stick to your game plan. And you just felt instantly better. And yeah, like I said, he was just a, an absolute gentleman. That's, uh, that's that's a sign of a good manager, I think, if you can just instill calm on a team and just respect and just uh, forget all the noise and get back to playing your game. Because a lot of times, I could imagine as a footballer, there's a lot of noise around a game and everything. And sometimes you can lose your head. And if you've got someone that can just calm you down, get you back in, in your rhythm, that's that's a positive. Yeah, absolutely. You, you if Especially playing away, you'll have the fans having a go at you, which you don't really hear that much, but you might have an opposition uh, team trying to wind you up, etc. People on the coaching staff trying to wind you up. So there's always them elements, whereas, like I said, if you've got someone who can just go, listen, just ignore the noise and just get back to playing your game. And when you can feel like that, you go, do you know what, I'm here for a reason, this is why I'm doing this. And like I said, it just puts your mind at rest. I wondered, um, I wondered... I always uh, rated you as a really, really good in the air uh, and, you know, winning, winning headers and challenges like that. I wondered where that, did you work on that part of your game? Or was that just something you were natural, naturally good at? Um, I don't know if I necessarily meant to work on it, but I remember being 10, 11 years old and I was probably five foot eight or something. I was, I was tall um, and I was the tallest in my class and I was all left footed. As you know, I still can't <laughs> use my right foot. So, when I played football, I played left wing, so which kind of stood out really because you don't expect someone so tall to be a winger. True, uh, yeah. It was a case where wherever I played, if there was a keeper, oh sorry, obviously the keeper, the keeper would just kick the ball to me, and I just used to love jumping for it. And I found yeah. as I was older, I realised that more often than not, a fullback would be quite small. So I, I yeah. kind of said, let's use this as an advantage, and if there's any set pieces or anything just hit me because more often than not I'll be stood on the fullback who's small and I'll win the header and I, I suppose it's just repetition repetition that got me better and better at doing it I suppose Was was there a knack of when to jump and when did you sort of work out a way of getting an advantage on whoever you were trying to beat in the aerial duel was, was there any sort of science to it? Um, <clears throat> I don't know if science is um, maybe a bit of a strong word but it was a case of I just got clever quickly enough to know when I needed to start my run and where the ball was going and when it was going to be at the optimum point of height where I could head the ball and yeah. again if you do it repetition 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 it, it becomes natural it becomes instilled so if I had a defender that would man mark me I'd kind of learn to shove them off or move away sometimes I'd go completely out of the box and 
if it was a set piece of corner or anything, I'd go out of the box so I could get a run on them because they're not going to come and mark me if I'd come 10 yards outside the box for a corner. Oh, I get you, yeah. Learning and adapting just to know who you're playing against. There'd be other times where I'd play against a fullback who was small and I'd go, I don't even need to j- jump to beat these people. I just need to pin them and I'll be able to win the header. So it was just, again, kind of adapting to whoever you were playing against. Yeah, I guess as fans, we, we see a, a header, go, two guys going out for a header. We just think of it in the moment, but you're actually thinking maybe a few steps ahead, I'm going to make the run on this person, get in the right position at the optimum moment. Yeah, absolutely. Again, it's all about the timing. Because by the time I was 16, I probably didn't grow. I was already six foot, so I didn't really grow anymore. But I got to yeah. the stage where when I became a professional, I didn't care if I was up against someone who was six foot four, six foot five. I knew I had a leap on me that could beat them. And I remember playing against Kevin Francis, uh, who's six foot seven, and I played centre half against him. Very and tall, I knew, yeah. Yeah, I, but I knew that if I got a run on him, I would be able to beat him in the air, and I did do. And it, again, wow. it just became repetition and and learning when to time your runs and when to go for the ball, and it just seemed to work for me. I see. I I reckon yeah, Keith Cole, or the current manager, would be a fan of fan of you in the team because he likes to uh, knock it long sometimes, and a few players that can knock it down. But it's all it's all it's all important. Um, football is it's not a you know a simple way of playing one dimensionally. You've got to be able to use that use that uh, those headers and those knockdowns occasionally. Yeah, absolutely. It's one of those where it it is it, about playing to your strengths, whether you're playing football or any sport. If someone's good in yeah. the air, then use it. Um, and again, it, it used to be the case that wherever I played, people would know I was good in the air and they would end up putting two people on me, which, although it was bad for me, it was great for the other guys because I'd go, right, I've got two people on me. Someone's got yeah. to play, hit the ball somewhere else. So even That you- means when you played with Bayo, they must have had two people on him, two people on you. <laughs> they must have had the whole team three. To be fair, Bayo, honestly, Bayo was amazing. He, he, again, he's the strongest guy I've ever known in my life. And yeah. I played against a few beasts at that time. And I remember when we was at Northampton, we played uh, Wolves and Mick McCarthy was the manager. And it was Ella Kobe, who, again, is an absolute machine. Yeah. And Bayo just had him in his pocket the whole game. And after the game, yeah. I was speaking to Mick McCarthy and he went, that's the first time in my life I've had to say to George Ella Kobe, leave him, he's stronger than you. Yeah. So, again, it was when me and Bayo were playing in the same team. It was, a, I think that's when... Gilly, Ryan Gilligan, I think he got a season of something like 19 goals, but he could feed from either me winning a knockdown or Bayo bringing a knockdown and bringing yeah. him to play. So, it was, it, like I said, play to yeah. your strength, good at it, then exactly. do it. Exactly. Um, and after um, Hull, you went to Wrexham, um, you played another good 100 games at Wrexham with... Um, He's not a popular figure in Northampton, Darren Ferguson, because he's got a Peterborough connection, but uh, also Jim Whitley played for Man City, quite local to you. Yeah, yeah, it was. Um, so I moved to Wrexham, uh, and Dennis Smith was a manager, um, and I lived, I moved back over from um, Hull to Altrincham, which, funny enough, is only about 45 minutes from Wrexham. So there's myself and Jim Whitley and Darren Ferguson used to drive into training every day. Um, so Darren was one of those, he was a great footballer, but he was. Just like his dad, he was moody. He would kick off at anything. And if you didn't pass the ball directly to him, or he would wrap the ball in it. And if you miscontrolled it, he'd give you um, a rollicking, shall we say. But yeah, we, I had two years there, which was great. Like I said, it was, it was only two years and <clears throat> just played, I think it's just shy of 100 games. 
but we got through to the uh, LDB Vans in 2005 and managed to beat uh, Southend, and, and that was the year that Wembley was being redone, so it was at the Millennium Stadium, oh, which is a great stadium. Being a, being a Welsh team, it was it was brilliant, and we brought obviously a lot of fans down there. And, uh, I remember being in the tunnel and just hearing the noise; it was insane. And uh, we had Ben Foster on loan, funny enough, um, wow. from Stoke. And he, he is the best keeper I've ever seen in my life. He's been such a nice guy. And I just remember us both going, we got goosebumps and we managed to win. And then after the game, uh, Sir Alex Ferguson came into the changing rooms and walked around and individually shook our hands and said, well done. So, yeah, it was a... You won, we were, you won the trophy? Yeah, yeah, we, yeah, we beat the South End 2-0. Oh, great. And to have, uh, you know, Fergie show, you know, come round as well. That's a sort of great moment, really. Yeah, absolutely. And he, he actually signed Ben Foster uh, on the back of... Um, well, not on the back of Rose, but he'd been watching Ben a few times because, like I said, Ben came on loan and he, he, he was just the best keeper. I've ever, and again, I've played with some decent keepers. He was just amazing at everything. He didn't seem to have any faults. Yeah, Foster was uh, his, his career. He's had a really good career and um, very, very highly rated and um, sort of sort of a classy sort of one of those classy sort of goalies that like you say can do do a lot of things um you you is this when Northampton came into your life after after Wrexham yeah absolutely it was it was a a weird situation to be honest because I remember it being a Friday afternoon I I was at it was obviously the close season and I was at my son's school watching him play football and I got a phone call from John Gorman who was the then Wickham manager um saying he wanted to sign me at Wickham but sadly, his wife had passed away the Christmas before. Um, so Wickham that season uh, had gone on 25 game unbeaten streak, I think it was. And then obviously the tragedy happened and John left on compassionate leave. Um, and then at the end of the season, he said, listen, I've got to go back in to have an interview, but I want to sign you. So I said, right, no problems. And then about half an hour later, Colin Calderwood, who was the Northampton manager at the time, rang me. Yeah. Said he wanted to sign me um, and he said, give you the weekend to have a little think about it. And then over that weekend, Colin Caldwell went to Nottingham Forest and John came to Northampton. So he rang me the next week and said, listen, bit of a change, but I'm at Northampton now. I still want to sign you. Uh, do you want to come and see me? And then that was, uh, I suppose, the rest is history. As they say, I went to meet him. And again, similar to Brian Little, just an absolute gentleman. And it was such a yeah. sad happened with his, his wife passing away. And I think that's why he probably didn't have that longer tenure at Northampton but again just a, a wonderful man yeah everyone I speak to about uh, John Gorman uh, what a lovely guy and uh, a talented guy knew, knew his knew his football um, one of those man managers you've been talking about that um, just didn't work out at Northampton but um, yeah it, 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 yeah, because he, he, he'd been with Glenn Hoddle for many years and he, he was a true footballer in a way that I remember pre-season literally on the third day we had the football and we were doing five aside and normally pre-season you just get beasted and run and run and run up hills around parks do anything where he said listen get used to running with the ball because that's what you're doing in a game and that's how you get your fitness up so yeah it was uh, all very different but he certainly knew his stuff maybe quite maybe quite modern in that respect because uh, there's a lot of ball work now and Maybe less less running up that six fields hill or whatever that you you had to do. Yeah, uh, I think he was ahead of the time. Uh, like I said, when when it was going back to my old days, we literally there's a place in Rochdale called Tandle Hills, and it still haunts me. You you run around there, and it's just hill after hill. Even going to Hull, we had um, Peter Taylor who took us to 
some park and there was one hill where you literally had to climb you couldn't even run up it you had to walk up it, it was that steep and that was the mentality of again where things have changed and when it came to the time at Northampton even when Stuart Gray took over he was very very much into his fitness doing things the right way and I suppose you, you just running and running it might get you to a level of fitness but it didn't get your football fit so yeah and injuries as well, injuries. There's a lot more understanding of how injuries work now with physiotherapy and stuff. Of you know, course, yeah. It's come on a lot. Advanced tremendously. And again, I remember with Stuart Gray, it'd be a case of, let's say, our season finished in the first week of May. We would normally come back on July the 1st and then we would start pre-season. You'd have probably six weeks, five, six weeks to get fit. Whereas yep. Stuart Gray, he came in and the first summer that we had off, he gave us all a programme. He, he weighed us all. Um, he said, here's a programme that you start on June the 1st. And by the end of June, the last programme was doing six one-mile uh, one runs with a minute and a half rest. So yeah. by the time you got back on the 1st of July, you was already in really, really good shape. So you could bring out the balls a lot quicker. So And the injuries would be reduced. So it was, it was great. I loved the fitness side of the game. I loved being fit. I loved running and running. So it, it, it benefited me for sure. Stuart Gray for me, uh, I've followed him for a, since the early 90s. Stuart Gray for me, even even taking into account Chris Wilder, Stuart Gray for me is one of the best managers I've, I've uh, you know, seen at a Cobblers team. Uh, he produced a team with some brilliant names in it. And um, I've got a list of a few here, um, obviously yourself included. Um, there were people like Mark Bunn who went on to, a, you know, much bigger things went on to play for Villa. Um, Jason Crow is a very cultured sort of right back, get up that right wing. He was a really good player. Brilliant player. Um, Gabor Giepes, like he was just brilliant when he came in. Do you remember him? I think Hungarian. Yeah. yeah, he was crazy. <laughs> was he, he, he? I remember him. He was just like he just seemed a level of no, no offense, but like a level above. Yeah, with yeah, what he could do. I think he played for Hungary. Like you know, not not a, not a minor. International footballing nation, like brilliant player. Of course, yeah. Um, and then there was uh, I'm I'm looking. I, I tell you what, I'm looking at. Do you remember this game against Swansea where we beat them four two? Do you know what? I, I I still remember that game really fondly for quite a few reasons because it was a case where we were through going it was towards the end of the season, and yeah. I know this because. Um, it was my 30th that in that April, and I'd booked to go away to Portugal. And it was yeah. a case where we'd gone on a bit of a run, and we ended up beating Swansea, I think it was 4-2 in the end. Yeah. Um, yeah. And we just absolutely battered them. And I remember yeah. thinking, actually, that far off the playoffs, here, I might have to cancel my holiday. But yeah. again, it was one of those where I remember it clearly because they had the... The right back Angel Rangel, who went on to play in the Premiership for them. Um, very good players they had. It was a game where a lot of the things was were aimed ball wise at me. So because uh, I knew I could beat him in the air, and I was beating him time after time after time. And in the yeah. end, they took it off, and they put uh, Dennis Lawrence, who was I think he's six foot five. I was actually at Wrexham with Big Den. Um, they put him right back, which he was never right back, but just to stop me winning all the aerial battles. So. I remember that game really fondly where I think we were 3-0 up relatively quickly. Um, and like I said, everything just seemed to fall into place. And it was, considering they were top of the league, we really did show them a footballing lesson, I think. 
Yeah, um, the manager was Roberto Martinez. There's a lot of big names in that that um, setup was wanted. Yeah. Um, some like people like Angel Rangel were playing that were you know really good good players. And um, I guess when you look at Northampton's side, like I said, I said a few of the players already, but there were people like Danny Jackman, who I thought was a class act on his day. Yeah. Uh, left back as well as you, but he went into centre mid mid at points. Um, and then up top probably two of my favourite ever club of strikers and I know you've got a good story about this guy that I'm not sure we can repeat Paul Huberts and <laughs> Akin Fenway every time I mention Paul Huberts to you you laugh do you know what <laughs> he's one of those guys that yeah. did not care honestly yeah. he was yeah. I've got so many stories that I'd love to tell you but he was, even in training he, he just his attitude was like I don't care and to be fair there's one story that I can tell you that isn't how bad it, he is but again he, he was just literally and to be fair for the size of me he wasn't actually that good in the air but his touch was fantastic and he could strike such a mean ball Yeah. but we played a game against Yeovil um, and we we lost him like the 95th minute I think it was Terry Skiverton there who went on to manage them the skipper scored a header from a corner yeah. so you're obviously all deflated you're wounded and you're back in the changing room so everyone's got their head in their hands and Paul yeah. just kind of sat up with his legs crossed like he's a, a school teacher or something. And <laughs> he's going around the team and he's going, you, did you give everything? He'd go, yes, Gaffer. And he'd go to someone else, you, did you give everything? And he'd go, yeah, of course I did, Gaffer, showing all the passion. And he's just gone to Paul, you, Hoobs, did you give everything? And he's just gone, to be honest, Gaffer, no, I don't think I did. <laughs> Honestly, I, I swear to God. It's one of those moments that will stick, even in my normal life where I've got a normal job now. I tell people ask me obviously questions, and I tell them yeah. the story, and it still just makes me laugh. Just yeah, the audacity to say that, and you could look around the changing rooms and like shoulders were bobbing up and down. I think Ian Taylor was in there. I think Daishi might have even been in there, and they were just like, giggling away. And I'm going, and the guy just got thrown completely. He didn't know what to say. And he went, "Well, he, he then." Because the guy popped his head round, who brought the chips. He went, chips are here, lads. So <laughs> was just gone, go away and have your chips. But again, that oh, was- to this day, I'm still not sure that Hubert knew where he was, where Northampton was. Because Gray, I don't know, he had, must have the best contact book at that level. But he brought in some players. He bought, I think he bought Hubert and uh, Akin Fenwa from Millwall. Yeah. And I just don't think, because Hubert's a really good player, probably a bit better than where we were really if he put his mind to it ended up in like Northampton in the middle of nowhere he must have been like where the hell am I like and no wonder he was a bit like discombobulated but what a player like do you remember that goalie I don't know if you played that game where he scored an overhead kick the forest I think it was yeah yeah I think I played in that one I was definitely watching it so whether I was on the bench or in the stand I definitely remember but yeah I remember the first few days he came in he said all I needed to find out, I didn't know where Northampton was, I just needed to find out where the nearest Starbucks was. And that yeah. was the reason we had a Starbucks. <laughs> <laughs> so, his, uh, yeah, I heard a story about him signing for clubs uh, dependent on if there's a Starbucks there or not. So, luckily, we had a Starbucks. And, uh, yeah, honestly, he, he was such a character. He, he would just, and he was a lovely guy as well. He was lovely, but sometimes you'd go, oh, he, he just got away with it because he didn't care. And you were yeah. like, don't know whether to love him or hate him, but yeah, top, funny, funny guy, really funny. Uh, I think, I don't know if Bayo came in like a job lot with Hubert, they're definitely both from Millwall. Yeah. Um, 
Bayo came in. I remember when I first saw Bayo. Yeah. All due respect to Bayo, I think at that point he was like, you know, fairly fairly heavy. He's you know a strong guy. I thought I, I literally remember thinking, who is this guy? How is yeah. this guy a footballer? And then within about twenty minutes, he probably scored no Bayo, but he just turned. Yeah. He turned my opinion round and just became a real centre point for the football club and just a, just a you know, a great, a great, a great striker that you could, like you say, play off like, like a player like yourself. Oh, really. Yeah, like I said, he, he, he's the best centre forward I've ever seen, just to pin defenders because he is that freakishly strong. And yep. again, you could use him on set pieces and say, listen probably seven of the team are going to mark you. So we're going to be okay because he would literally just pin people. And even in training, it's one of those where I used to say about getting a timing or get a, getting a run on someone. If you got anywhere near Bayo, he would just pin you. And then that's it. No matter what, you, you could literally try and put your arms around him and throw him to the floor and he wouldn't move. He was yeah. strong and, and su- again, such a character though. It was one of those where when I was captain at Northampton, I was in charge of the fines. So Bayo did not like paying fines. And it was one of those where other people were getting fined and they were going, why do we have to pay if Bayo don't pay? And I'm like, I'm not being funny. I'm realistic. <laughs> Bayo watched me in a second. So I've had to just pull him to one side and say, listen, the lads are causing up for it. You're being a pain in the backside. I need you to pay your fine in front of the lads just so I can get some money off them. So we end up doing it, which was great. And he went, Holly, you're the only person who I've ever paid a fine to. So <laughs> that's a bit of a compliment. But yeah, he was one of those that he, he didn't really train that much because um, he had injuries or he had things he, he was trying leg. to... He broke his leg. He had pins in his leg, like a big steel rod or something in his leg. So he couldn't well, really... He broke his leg and he had a skin graft um, uh, on his calf. And you can see that where it, it looks like a shark bite. I'm, I'm, to be fair, I'd still fancy him to beat the shark, but it yeah. looked like a shark bite. And... It was so, yeah, he, he had to be very well looked after. Um, but, but that's but, what Stuart Gray was quite good at, I think. And I think, I think managers throughout his career have maybe struggled with that to an extent. They're probably some managers are like, just get out there and you, you know, just work like everyone else. But he's the sort of player that if you manage him right, he'll do business. Uh, well, you look at him now, he's still playing now, and he's I think he's 38 now, and yeah. he's still scoring goals. And that's the testament to the people who have managed him and managed him correctly because, yeah. If you can run all day, then run all day. But if you need to rest and you're still going to produce the magic on a Saturday, then a clever manager would say, I'm going to rest you and I'm going to play you on a Saturday. And that's what it needed to be done. And again, Stuart Gray, he was such a, probably the one of the more clever managers that I worked with. He just, everything was down to detail. And I remember the first time he pulled me in for a meeting um, and he'd put the game on, uh, the game before he came. And he said, what was your main role um, in this game? And I was going, I don't understand what you mean. He went, do you realise that you took the corners and took the free kicks? I went, uh, well, I do now you've mentioned it. And he went, what's your biggest asset? I went, probably heading. He went, well, how the, how, how the hell are you going to get on the end of your own corner? I was like, yeah, yeah good point. So from then on, <laughs> he'd, he'd bring someone in like Daddy Jackman, who was, again, cracking left back, cracking midfielder, who was quality yeah. on the delivery. And they said, yeah. it's good in the air. I'm going to use you for your strengths. So there's no point mm-hmm. you put the ball in the box if you can't head it. And I was like, yeah. But even the training sessions, it was one of those where you wanted to do, you were engaged with it. They were, they were well thought out planned sessions. And he really, really was a good coach and everything was down to the last detail. So going through oppositions and what formation they'd play, um, who we'd mark, 
where we'd go, what they were their strengths and weaknesses. I was, he was brilliant at that. Yeah, he's in. Um, he's in Matthew Letizia's autobiography because he was a Southampton guy for a while. Uh, Stuart Gray and Letizia, you might be able to sort of tell us a little bit about this. But uh, Letizia said that he's a, a brilliant coach, but maybe not. Maybe not the best, the best sort of manager in terms of having to cope with the players and you know what goes on in change rooms sometimes. Um, but a brilliant coach is that? Is that what you sort of saw? Or? It's absolutely bang on the money. And the good thing is now that Matthew Letizia has said this, I can say that. So there was an, yeah. an as a man manager, he, he did really struggle. I feel. Um, yeah. Remember, there was a, a three game period where we'd played. So one on the Tuesday, and I played ninety minutes. And then on the Saturday, we, we played Huddersfield away. So I went to Huddersfield, obviously expecting to play. He named the team and I wasn't in the starting 11 and I wasn't even on the bench and he didn't even speak to me. And I was like, I don't, I don't get this. I, if, if he, if he, I don't, I've never had a problem with a manager saying, listen, I don't think you played well enough. Whether yeah. I did it or not, as long as he tell me. And I was like, I remember speaking to the Huddersfield manager at the time because I knew him. He said, what are you doing? I went, I'm not in the squad. He went, you kidding? I was like, no, he said, how come? I went, I genuinely don't know. He's he's not said anything. So it was a bit embarrassing. So I remember on the Monday morning, I, I wanted to pull him and have a chat with him. And we were playing in the cup on the Tuesday against, I think it was either Middlesbrough or Sunderland at their place. Obviously, big stadiums, big games. Yeah. Um, and I went to pull him and he just said, listen, I'll speak to you after training. So I was like, okay, fair enough. So then we did the training for the game the next night and we did the starting 11. And I was back in the starting 11. And I was like, this is just weird. So after training, I've gone to speak to him and he's gone, do you still want to speak to me? With like a smile on his face as if he justified everything else. And I was like, oh, yeah. Just... So unfortunately, it, like I said, it, it, that's why there's a huge distinction between a good man manager and a good coach. And it yeah. is summed up by saying, like I said, his training sessions were second to none. They were brilliant. They were enjoyable. They were varied. He did lots of different drills on crossing and finishing from different angles, and it it was brilliant. I loved it, but he just, like I said, he like Matt Letizia said, he, he did struggle to portray that into a man manager kind of way. And I think seeing how he was at our level, dealing with players that are big time who are multimillionaires, I think he he would struggle. But that's why I think he went on to I'm sure so I'm at Fulham um, when they got promoted to the Premier League when they beat Villa a couple of seasons ago. He was yeah. there. As one of the coaches, and I, I just went, it's perfect for him. If he's got a coaching role, he'll never yeah. go. But maybe, maybe uh, it's like footballers. If you've got a complete footballer who's good at everything, they're not going to be down in League One or League Two. Maybe it's the same with managers. That if he was as good as a manager, the man management as he was a coaching, he wouldn't be at Cobblers anyway. So you're going to have to take the the bad points with the good points sometimes with yeah, managers as well as footballers. Yeah, fair point. Um, but. I, I, what, what Stuart Gray can do is say, look, you know, and I'm not sure he's bothered, he wouldn't be bothered to do that, not that sort of character, but he put together one of the best football cobblers teams I've seen, and yeah. even up against the, the Chris Wilder team, I'd say it's, you know, as good or better, and took us as high at the league as we've probably been, like right up towards the top of League One. Yeah, yeah. Um, like you say, pushing the playoffs. We were we were, we were going toe to toe with clubs like Forest, who Hubert scored the overhead kick with, going toe to toe with the and Swansea's and doing good against them so they were good days I really enjoyed yeah. it it was good because I remember we played Swansea at their place I think early on in the season and we got given an absolute footballing lesson we got beat 3-0 and it was 3-0 yeah. at half time and for the 
very few occasions I was happy to be on the bench. <laughs> and it was got to half time, and the gaffer just came in. He went, "Listen, I'm not making any subs. There's no way I'm putting any of the guys on the bench on yeah. because you need to get get us out of this mess." And we just, we got absolutely battered at their place. So it was good to get a bit of revenge back on them, and, and like I said, beat them so convincingly back at our place, and even going playing at Forest again, really good game. I remember that game. Um, he just, like I said, he, he created a team of fit people because. I think every manager's go-to line when they take over a club is you're not fit enough. But he came in and said, we're not fit enough and actually got us fitter. So yeah. with fitter, everything becomes a little bit easier. So you're able to run that extra yard, that extra yeah. half a mile in the game. You're able to not be out of breath as much and control the ball and do things better. And he just yeah. made, us fit, made us better in every department. So he was, yeah, like I said, he was brilliant at that. And there were other League Cup nights. There was the, the game where we beat Bolton. Um, that was a brilliant night up at um, the Reebok. Bayo did a masterclass that night. Did you play that one? Yeah, I remember the game very well. And funny enough, it was, um, I've got, weirdly, I'm from Stockport, but the lads I used to go out with when I was 17, 18, you know, there was a group of lads from a rival school who we played football against and I became good friends with them. So we used to play golf together, go to the pub together. There's about six or seven of them who were all Bolton fans. And for some reason, I don't know why, because their parents weren't Bolton fans. So it might have been a rebellious teenager thing. I don't know. But they, yeah. all, they all ended up going to the game. Um, and it was only probably a week ago. Um, we're getting all these Facebook challenges nowadays. I put a picture on where it was me when I went to head the ball against Danny Shitu, who yeah. was an absolute beast. And I beat him in the air and, and I put him on his backside. And I was like, I remember that because I had to mark him in the game. So set pieces, he was a big, strong lad. But again, it was one of those where if he was marking me, whoever Bayo was marking Bayo, made the most of it and scored a couple of great goals. There's a picture actually of one of the goals he scores. He's jumped like on me as, as he's gone. To yeah, play. I remember that, yeah. I can't even see where my head is in the picture. <laughs> Squashed. Like, yeah, there's like six bodies, and it's like Bale's just kind of picked us up and all moved us to one side so he can score. But yeah, we had. He had a, a, a bandage on his head, didn't he, that yeah. night? He did, yeah. He scored a penalty and scored a. I think it was a penalty. And scored a header from a corner yeah. set piece. Um, but again, he was just. Bolton were in. I don't know. They might have been Premier League then, I'm not sure. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, but he was just. He just dictated the game, which could do, because whether you're in League Two or in the Premier League, if you're not stronger than someone and they can dictate you and bully you and tell you how the game's going to be, that's what Bale was great at. So we managed to have a lot of really big cup games uh, when I was at Northampton, which obviously you got the Bolton one. We played Middlesbrough, Sunderland. Um, great games, which I remember being, and again, different memories from each game. Um, I think the, the Middlesbrough game we played, I think we were 1-0 up with about 10 minutes to go and we were really comfortable. Um, and then, for some reason, we went 2-0 up and that's the worst thing that could have happened because Middlesbrough then threw everything at us. The goalkeeper was coming up for corners, um, everything. And they managed to get back to 2-all and then beat us on penalties, I think it was. Yeah, um, there were there were some brilliant uh, league cup nights and I, I, I think cobblers it just it just give you a bit of a a bit of relief from the league. you just play your game a bit a bit of a bit of pressure off and Stuart Gray was that sort of manager I think when, when you were 
when you were you were on form and playing well, things were going well. It was all good. I think towards the end of his sort of tenure at Cobblers, certain certain things started to happen. It, it didn't sort of end particularly well, did it? I, you know, did we get relegated? Is that when uh, Leeds we got relegated? Was that Stuart Gray? Yeah, unfortunately, yeah. Um, so yeah, it's one of those where Andy Hughes, who I, who I spoke about, who I've known since I was ten years old, that actually played at Leeds on that day, last game of the season. It was, again, it was a funny season. Uh, we, we saw the fixtures straight away and saw the Ellen Road last game of the season. We all said, imagine if we need to win this to yeah. either get promotion or to avoid relegation. And unfortunately, it was to avoid relegation and we didn't do that. So it was, um, it was a surreal game in the way I was playing against my mate from I've known for years and years. And we lost the game. And afterwards, again, Ellen Road, it was just such an awesome stadium. Full of yeah, did yeah, they have Jermaine Beckford in that season? I think they did. Um, they had a few decent players. I think because we, we lost the game three 0 in the end. Um, but I remember after the game, I don't know whether he knew he was going to get sacked or it was just a strange talk. He came in and said, "Listen, there's a lot more things important in life than football. So go home and hug your families and tell them you love them and go and get a shower." And you were like. I suppose, again, at the time, you don't really take it in and you go, is he just venting or is he just upset or does he... Trying to say something. Yeah, do you know he's going to get sacked or... That's <clears throat> that's the speech he gave. So, yeah, it was, it was a bit sad the way it ended. And I remember, yeah, we were playing um, Milton Keynes partway through the season um, and it was horrendous conditions and the game actually got abandoned. I think it was at half-time. Um, and then we ended up replaying that MK game at our place Um the Tuesday before the season finished. And I think even if we'd have drawn, we'd have been safe. But we ended up losing 1-0, scrappy game, which meant we had to go to the Saturday to Leeds and get something. Um, I think yeah. we a point. And I remember, I think, through that midweek, after losing to MK, on the Wednesday or the Thursday, we had the Players' Player of the Year award. And you're going, why are we doing this? When we've got... Yeah the biggest games of our lives in a couple of days, handing out awards to people. I remember the, the gaffer coming up with the speech saying, we're going to be fine, we're going to go to Leeds and get something. And I was like, this is just, it just felt all wrong. It wasn't the right preparation. It's not how things should have been done. But like I said, we then went to Ellen Road and got beat th- convincingly 3-0. And it was just a, a weird end to the game where, like I said, he had the speech of going hugging your families and it was just a, a weird weird yeah thing. it was a sad it was just a sad end to that but what always seems to happen at cobblers is we get to a certain point and maybe the investment isn't there to take it take it on and then things sort of naturally fall away and that's that's been a pattern pattern for years um but after Stuart gray went um samo samo ian sampson came was Ian Sampson at the club already or did he come in like i can't remember he came in as manager obviously um, um, it's a good question now. I'm actually struggling to think now. He must have been youth team coach or something. I can't remember, but obviously a, a cobbler's legend and um, a, a big, big fan favourite. And um, his his uh, reign as cobbler's manager, I think, ended quite harshly. But uh, I think he got sacked after just a, a run of, of draws. It wasn't even a bad run, but it, it will be forever known for that that night at Liverpool is, you know, it, it, a lot of managers that are probably managed to a higher level than in Sampson will not have that night in their career. 
and you yeah. were a part of it. So yeah. maybe you can talk us through. Maybe talk us through a little bit about the build-up. You, you know, we obviously you said beat Reading in the previous round, but I think we weren't even doing for that good in the league. But we pulled this result out of the bag. Yeah, it was it was weird. I remember we beat Millwall first of all um, in the first round. Then we beat Reading away. Like I said, it's crazy circumstances where we shouldn't have won the game, but we managed to do that. And then we get drawn against Liverpool. And it's I remember I was captain at the time, and even leading up to the games, I was dreaming about the game, about being at uh, Anfield and speaking to the Liverpool players. And it was all very weird. But just because I was that excited, I just wanted to <clears throat> go and play there and just knew it would be a special occasion. And I remember going through the um, tunnel and obviously tapping the board and then going out for the warm-up. And even before the game, when you walked onto the grass, it just looked like the greenest grass of all time. It was it, mm. it was kind of magical, which is hard for me to say being a Man United fan. But the, the pitch looked immaculate. And I remember Craig Hinton was videoing it all and... Um, he's got. I think he's still got the video somewhere. I was in the change rooms before and after, so I might to try and uh, get in touch with him to get me a copy of that. But yeah, it was just everything. Again, everything was done right. We we stayed over and we did the right preparations, and everyone was excited. And it was just one of those where <clears throat> we knew that we were never expected to win. But you know what? So what? Who cares? Let's go out there. And we knew from experience playing against Premier League teams. One thing, one thing they do do is give you time on the ball. So as good as we are or as bad as we are, we had a little bit more time on the ball to try and do our stuff. Having said that, I remember it was Ben Tozer's uh, debut, I think, and he was playing set yeah. half And we went down after, um, I think it was seven minutes, like this could be a really, really long night. But I then, remember that, yeah. You ran a bit scored, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, it was a nice... Um, and as I said, it was one of uh, because they dropped off a little bit, we got on the ball a little bit. So we had players who could play, and Michael Jacobs was there, Liam Davis was causing problems. Courtney Herbert was obviously rapid. Um, and really I remember fast. the round before, he caused uh, Rossini, the left back for Reading, all kinds of problems. So when we did get a bit of chance to play and got Kevin Thornton on the ball, people like that, it's we started doing all right. <clears throat> and then we got an equaliser, and we somehow get to extra time and we're like how has this even happened and then we stop I think um, if you look at the team uh, that night it was what you probably call a mixed bag uh, but um, like you say if 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 players at any level are given a bit of space to play they'll play and you've, you've gone through a few of them Kevin Thornton absolute talent like really yeah. skillful footballer uh, you know his career probably didn't pan out as he wanted it to or, you know, people expected it to, but a really skillful footballer on his day. Um, then you had, like, Abdul Osman, who was really sort of probably quite, you know, underrated in terms of his work rate in the middle there. Yeah. Uh, defensive midfielder. And then and then you've got people like um, Michael Jacobs, who was a class, yeah. even at that age. These, these, weren't, these weren't, like, you know, probably, you know, Bog Sandley, two players. There was some real talent in there. And then, uh, Billy Mackay, who went on to have a good career for Inverness, I think it was, bagged loads of goals in Scotland. And um, Liam Davis, who I always liked as a ball carrier on the left. He was a left-footed as well, wasn't he? Yeah. yeah. Um, so, like, some, some really talented players. And did did the belief start to grow throughout the game? Was it one of those ones? You thought, actually, the longer we're in this, the, longer, yeah. you know, the better chance we've got. 
Yeah, because again, a, a lot of the names that you mentioned were young kids at the time. They were young, not seasoned pros, not used to playing at maybe stadiums like Anfield, not used to the occasion. And maybe it might have got to them in the offset. I, I always remember I used to <clears throat> get a little bit nervous before games, where as towards probably halfway through <clears throat> my career and onwards, I was too, <clears throat> I don't know, nervous, not excited, but. I knew how to deal with the nerves, and big stadiums didn't bother me. Playing in front of a hundred thousand people, if I ever did that, I don't. It wouldn't bother me because I kind of got used to doing what I needed to do on the pitch. And I think for them young lads, it was such a massive occasion. Northampton playing against Liverpool at Anfield, it was amazing. And it did take us a little time just to get settled into the flow of the game. But like I said, the great thing about playing the Premier League teams is not only the stadium, the the fans, etc. They do give you a bit more time, so having a little bit more time to make that pass or switch the play or a little controlled header or something, it gives you a little bit more confidence. And what people like Kevin Thornton, Liam Davis, Michael Jacobs, they all, if they had a bit of confidence, it would shoot through the roof. And as the game went on, we just got better and better and more comfortable. So I think that's how the game developed. And like I said, we went into extra time. It was, and we scored, went 2-1 up and we're like, oh my God, this is insane. And, I remember the weather was terrible. It Just, rained, didn't it? I, I remember I was in the way in that night and it yeah. was torrential rain. I remember Samo on the touchline, Roy Hodgson looking mostly dejected on the touchline. Yeah. Um, and Jacob scored. It was just mounting pressure from Cobblers. Jacob scored and knocked in the rebound. Yeah. And at that point, we all went crack. Yeah, crackers, excuse the pun. Michael Jacobs' pun. But <laughs> we went crazy. And... Do you know, when, when you score a second goal against Liverpool Anfield, you're like, we can actually do this. But the clock, I yeah. promise you, I don't know, as a player, that clock moves so bloody yeah. slowly in that extra time after Jacob has scored. I was looking at that clock and it just would not move. Yeah. It was like, oh, it's terrible. It's one of those where <clears throat> I don't really like there being a clock because if there is a clock when you're playing football, you yeah. glance. And I think there was something like four minutes to go. And I was like, I'm sure I checked about an hour later and there was still four minutes, like you said. And I'm going, why is the clock not going down? And then yeah. obviously they scored to make it two all. And it was just one of those where you go, we've done so well. We've had such a good run. This was the moment. And it's just been taken away from us. It was just the mm. jet. And Gog scored the, the, the equaliser. There's a video. I was watching the video of the, of the game. And there's a little moment of you giving him a right clattering challenge. You took him out completely. You took, you got the ball, but you, 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 sh- as a League Two, uh, League Two player, you showed yourself actually. I'm here, I'm here to win this. Do you remember? I don't know if you remember that tackle, but do you know what? Funny enough, I, I've never seen the game, which is crazy, really. I, I, I've even got it on DVD. I got it sent to me by Sky Sports, and I've ne- I've seen the highlights obviously many times, but I'm gonna have to sit down actually and watch the whole ninety minutes because I, I don't remember that tackle. But again, I've got some great pictures that got sent to me that I've, I will keep forever. Memories of. The night, and there's even the one where Steve Guinan missed the first penalty, and he's walking back towards the halfway line, and yep. he can see the rain, and it's just the most incredible picture. Even though it's heartbreaking that he missed the penalty, but yeah, then we all get into the huddle with uh, with the gaffer with Samo and Crosby, Malcolm Crosby, and and it, again, it's just a case of is who's taking the penalties. It was the same format as I think the Reading game, um, and again. Crosby was a quite a calming character, wasn't he, in that in that camp? Because he was he was an old school football guy. Uh, Samo was quite relatively inexperienced, and obviously Crosby was there just to add that old school calmness to it and just chat, chill out, guys. A little bit. He, he, 
it was a brilliant appointment from Samo. Um, obviously, they had a connection through Sunderland, I think it was, uh, many years ago. But, yeah, like you said, you just listen to, because Samo was obviously so new to it, you'd listen to Crosser and everything he said, you, you knew it was backed up by years of experience. And you're going, I'm not even going to question this point. Or And again, someone else who had some cracking training drills. And he was a great help, a great guy, and really did well with Samo. And again, he, he was a Geordie, typical, although he's from Sunderland and a Mackham. I don't want to offend him. He was from that part of the country, so he sounded like he was from up there. And he was just a, a, a good guy, a laugh. You could approach him, you could speak to him, and very calming, very knowledgeable. And like I said, mm. a really good appointment for me and Samson. So we were just, again, stood in the huddle, lashing down. I remember, I think it was in the extra time where we had two people going down with cramp and the young lads were struggling with cramp, and I, I remember feeling really. I mean, I was playing centre half, so I would never do. I would never get cramp because I was never doing that much running. But I, I just remember being excited and nervous, and it's penalties, and the same as Reading. I, I, I was next in line to take the penalty. I was number six against Reading, and number oh. six against Liverpool. And thankfully, <laughs> Abdul scored both times because it's one of those where I was even scared, and it's, I don't know if scared. The, the nerves, I don't even know what you can compare it to. So for the yeah. last, they were actually taking the penalty. Um, and again, it, I had to go and toss the coin with their captain. And we had to take him at the cop end. And I was like, again, when you look back on things, I'm going, I'm a Man United fan. And we've just beaten Liverpool on penalties at the cop end. And it was just, <laughs> it, it, it was surreal. I um, think even though after going and missed, um, it was a bit of a, you know... Bit of a, a bit of a low, but I I still sort of started to believe at that point. I was like, actually, we can do this. And yeah. as the the penalties progressed, the the belief belief grew. I think I don't know who did that. Ngog miss someone missed um, for, yeah. for Liverpool. And at that point, I thought hey, we've got a chance there. And then <laughs> Abdul stepped up. And looking back on it now, the way he, he not generally put that away, opened up his opened up his body yeah. and just slotted it in. Brilliant! Yeah. Like it was what so a moment. Funny. It was such a cool penalty. And yeah. to be fair, I, I, when he first came in, Abdullah, I was like, he's not technical, but then he, he, he kind of grew and grew in, in the team. And again, he did exactly the same penalty against Reading. And he did this. And the keeper went the other way. <clears throat> and it just looks the best penalty because it is, like I said, cool as a cucumber, side-footed into that corner. And then obviously yeah. we went delirious and ran over to the corner and then did the whole length of the pitch towards where you guys yeah. were. Yeah. Um, I, that moment, will n- I don't, don't think we'll ever be beaten as a Cobblers fan because we are, we're never going to go to Anfield and beat Liverpool again. They probably put, if we played them again, they put the world's strongest team out and beat us 20-0 or something. But <laughs> on that night, it all came together. And what was it like in the dressing room afterwards? Were you like in disbelief or were you like, just like, Going crazy. Again, I remember Craig Hinton having his video cam going round. Um, we had Alistair Slow there, who was on the bench, which oh, is yeah. insanity in itself. Yeah. Uh, but it was just, again, first of all, we were out on the pitch for a while and we were hugging everyone and everything. And then we'd get back into the changing room. Um, and I can't remember, I think there's some beers in there, I'm not sure. Um, and then because I was captain, I got called out straight away. So I had to do interviews with like, Sky and BBC and all this, and I, I loved yeah. it because I was like, do you know what? This is absolutely brilliant. So I was in a lot of talk, and then uh, another surreal thing that I'll remember forever that 
summer. So we beat them in the September, I think it was. Yeah. That summer before when I was on holiday, I went to Cyprus with the family. Um, and in the same hotel as me was Phil Neal. Now, wow, yeah. Phil Neal's uh, Northampton, I didn't realise. I didn't realise he came from Northampton, but a Liverpool legend, won X amount of European Cups. Yeah. Um, and I, I just got talking to him on holiday and we got on well. We had a few beers and I'd see him most days and speak to him. Um, and my son would chat with him and etc. And then after the game, we got back on the coach and then someone shouted me down because I was at the back of the coach and said, there's someone here to see you. And Phil Neal got on the coach and came and said hello and congratulations to me. I was like, how are you doing? You okay? He's going, yeah, was, what a game tonight. Fantastic performance. And I was like, it's just very, very surreal. Um, yeah. And then I don't know what the other lads' memories will be, but I think they were sponsored by Carlsberg. They might still be. I'm not, I'm not too sure. But I'm sure they yeah. put a about 10 crates of beer on and from north from liverpool to northampton is probably a good couple of hours if i drank one beer that's it because i just remember standing up most of the way going what what what's just happened i don't can you believe we've just beat liverpool and obviously yeah. your, dad, your family are all messaging your friends are all messaging you it's just insane i remember i got sent the clip from uh, Sky Sports because Alan McAnally was doing the penalties. Um, yeah. And you can see him and he's going, if Abdul Osman scores this, Northampton will beat Liverpool or something along the lines. And he goes, he scored. And you can see him crying. And I'm like, <laughs> I, I, I cry watching him cry because he's a football guy. He's been in football all his life and he still understands. It's easy to understand it why. It's so important that Northampton and what a monumentous night it was, and it was just incredible, incredible. The Liverpool, the Liverpool, Liverpool fans uh, initially were, you know, uh, pissed off. But the next day, I stayed over in Liverpool. I made a sort of a uh, couple of days of it, and the next day, like I was like king of Liverpool, Liverpool for the day. Every time, everyone I spoke to, they were like, "Where are you from?" Because obviously I'm from Scouse accent. I said I'm from Northampton, and they'll be like, "Oh right," and they're all like, "Fair play." You deserved it, and because they're football people up there, and they understood that we went we went toe to toe with them. We didn't we didn't play like hoop ball. We played football, and we won fair and square. So wow. yeah, fantastic, it was very very surreal. And again, even coming back to because it wasn't that long afterwards, I don't think that Stamol got the sack. Which again, it was really harsh. I think the first game afterwards we played Bradford at home after the Liverpool game, and we won two 0 It was I remember actually because I think Peter Taylor was actually the manager at Bradford, who used to manage me at Hull. Um, and we expected a really tough game, and it was a lot more straight than it would be. Um, but yeah, it was a. But like you said, I think we drew six games, five or six games on the bounce. Yeah. So be a skeptic or a pessimist and go, well, we were undefeated in five six games, or we've not won in five six, and then we lost the next game. So it's suddenly yeah. if not won in seven games. So I then, still think it was harsh on on Samo. I think I think in football, if you if you achieve something like that, you earn yourself a bit of leeway, and and uh, a few a few draws are on the on the bounces at the end of the world. But who knows what goes on behind the scenes? We don't know. But um, Samo, thankfully, is back at the club. He's doing a lot of work with the, the kids, so he's that's, that's nice that he's back. Um, we've been talking for quite a long time, and these stories are brilliant. Um, the, the only problem is we haven't really spoken about uh, after Samo too much, but we can. You know, Gary Johnson came in, didn't work out. Um, what did you make of Gary Johnson briefly? Gary Johnson was a character, uh, again, very similar to Neil Warnock, very Marmite. Um, and it was one of those, he, he wasn't there to make friends in the slightest. He was there to win football matches and by yeah. what 
means he saw fit. Um, so a lot of the players would fall out with him. Um, <clears throat> and to be fair, he, I remember we'd played golf. We had a charity golf there, uh, Collingham. Um, is it Collingtree? Uh, Collingtree, yeah. Collingtree, thank you. Um, and it, the first funny moment was where it was on the 18th, on the, the par five, it's a, an island green, you have to get over water. And he was at the bunker at the back and the clubhouse was full of people, but he was dead small, so no one could see him in the bunker. And he's just gone... <laughs> He's gone to me, watch this. So he's picked up his ball, picked up a clump of sand in the other hand, threw his ball onto the green, threw the sand <laughs> on the green, and then everyone started clapping on the, on the uh, balcony. I was like, oh my God, how can get away with that? But, uh, <laughs> but it was that evening, he actually said, listen, um, you obviously get on well with the players. I want someone like you that can be the go-between. So you've got to be like a first-team coach. So he made me first-team coach, and that's where I started to see the other side of him, where... He was a lot more approachable. He was quite a funny guy, but I could absolutely understand why other people would get wound up the wrong way about him. So, again, he, yeah. he didn't really warm to people, but I think he, he just wanted to try and win football matches and it, it just didn't work out, like you said. I think it's horses for courses with him as well. He seems to be better, more at home down in southwest sort of area, Yeovil and places like that. They, they seem to be the clubs that he, he does well at. Um, then... It was after that the Boothroyd came in. This must be towards the end of your career at Coppers. Yeah, yeah. Um, Boothroyd came in after, straight after Gary Johnson. And um, what? How long were you? When did you leave Cobblers, and how long were you lot of managed by uh, Eddie Boothroyd for? Oh, uh, it was 2012. I retired in the. Uh, I left the Cobblers. So in, um, so I'd have been 34, 35. Um, so I knew I was coming to the end of my career anyway. And to be fair. A.D. Boothroyd was brilliant and I'm, he, and he's the guy who let me go so if I was bitter in any way I wouldn't yeah. say anything, but honestly what a fantastic guy and what a coach again someone who had something nailed down to an absolute T and I, get, I, I know lots of people call him Hoothroyd and he did go long ball and I remember Jason Crow used to hate it, he was playing right back and just pummeling the ball 60 yards and I don't think he would have liked the gaffer but again it was one of those where everything was down to the finest detail. So if we ever scored a goal, we'd know why. If we ever conceded a goal, we'd know why. We'd know who was to blame. And he was brilliant. And he pulled me in pretty early. I was saying, listen, you were a first-team coach with um, Gary Johnson. Is that something you want to keep doing? I said, to be honest, I've not got that long left in the game. So if I can play at all, I'd rather play. So he said, great, that's no problem. So I was in and out of the team. Didn't play much with him. But again, still gave everything with and for him. Um, so was he the sort of guy that um, you can you can understand why he's gone to the England setup and done well there? Yeah, absolutely. Um, again, it, it's so everything's disciplined with him, which is great for any English schools uh, up to from under fourteens up to twenty ones, twenty threes, whatever it needs to be. Having someone yeah. like him in there, similar to having someone like Stuart Gray as a coach in there, would be absolutely perfect for young kids coming through. So I can I can completely understand why he's got through because he kind of drives the fear into you. Um, he kind of drives. He, he wants the respect, and he's saying, "Listen, if you want, if you run through a brick wall, I'll run through it with you." And then when you get on that, he's like, "This is the kind of guy I wish I'd have met him years ago in my career and played for him then because I think I'd have loved it." I th- yeah, I think some of the um, I, I don't even I don't know what you call it a bit of the a gripe of a, a cobbler's fan towards Boothroyd. I th- I think it's how his 
time at Northampton ended and that I don't know if you ever watched it the playoff final uh, against Bradford at Wembley where uh, Bayo didn't didn't start and um, we got thrashed by Bradford and there was you know there was rumours that Boothroyd and Bayo clashed a little bit in terms of you know Bayo is a massive character within the football club well um, I think that's it's a funny one really because I was actually at that game doing the commentary. Um, oh, there we go I, then. I was down on pitch side, and again, I just even though I was not at the club anymore, I knew I wasn't involved. I was just so excited because it was Wembley's new stadium. It was huge. It was a great occasion. I knew yeah. there was going to be loads of people there. And I remember speaking to um, the gaffer before the game, and he was he said something weird, superstition about the colour bibs and last or whatever it was last year. The winners had this colour bib on them that. Um, they think they're going to win or something. I was like, yeah, I don't believe in all that superstition stuff. And he was talking to me about, um, and then he came and said that the Bayo's not starting. I spoke to Bayo before the game and he's gone, he's not starting me. I was like, are you kidding? He went, no. Yeah. So uh, for all the great things Bayo brought to the team, he was also difficult to manage. So yeah. he would constantly be late. He would turn up late for club events, he wouldn't wear the right attire and like I said, being in charge of the fines, it was an absolute nightmare because other people who were younger would say, well if he's doing it, I'm going to do it as well, so I think yeah. because Boothroyd was such a disciplinarian, he would say yeah. I, I'm not going to buckle to him. it's my way or he can clear off, I think that may well, I don't know, because I wasn't in the changing room um, in fact it was a year after um I'd left the cobblers, so I was down there. Um, and again, I watched the game and being 3-0 down after 27 minutes, I was just like, yeah, well, the game had gone. And whether there was a fallout with Bayo or... I could see why they certainly would clash because they were they were both very, very strong characters. Yeah, and, and maybe, maybe if it was Stuart Gray in charge, Bayo might have started and things might have been different. But, you know, it, 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 it was Boothroyd's achievement to get us there so he can choose who he wants. I think he started Clive Platt. Is uh, yeah. I've done quite a few commentary uh, game games. Um, done the commentary for the games at that season, because um, wherever there was local to me within fifty miles, I said, "Listen, if you want me to do the radio, and I love doing it, because as you can probably tell, I can talk for England." But I remember watching the games and Clive Platt. He he was good, but he wasn't as good as Bayo. So no it didn't make sense to not start Bayo. And sometimes yeah. again, you look back in your career and maybe. AD Boothroyd would go, maybe I should have started Bayo. Would it have made a difference? It might have made no difference, but the fact that we were 3-0 down after 27 or 29 minutes, wherever it was, yeah. the game was over, everybody's going to look at it and go, this wouldn't have happened if you started Bayo. So, exactly. And, and Bayo might have, you know, Bayo was brilliant at holding the ball up, maybe taking a bit of pressure off of us, but, you know, that's that, that's history. And, uh, you know, Boothroyd went on, went on to the England job. Fair, fair play, you can't, you can't argue against it done some yeah. really good stuff with the under 21s and everything um you left cobblers uh, around that time to go to did you go to corby with samo yeah it was one of those where um i'd had i think six knee operations in the last six seasons and then i had, wow. my, I had my shoulder operation where i just get my shoulder in training so i had to have that pinned um and i, st- I went to samo ran me and said you want to come training with corby so i did probably two weeks of pre-season and every single day my knee was just causing me all kinds of grief so I just said listen I can't even do this I need to 
call it a day. Uh, I need to retire. So I didn't even get to play a game, unfortunately. I played, funny enough, I think we played Northampton in the pre-season friendly. Um, yeah. But other than that, I, I didn't play any league games because I didn't want to just continue playing with my like getting worse and worse. Yeah, you but you can look back at a career, you know, well earned and well played. And that I think it's a really looking from the outside in, it's a really nice thing for you, as we've talked about your childhood love for football, you know, out in the street playing football, that not every player, even as hard as they work like you do, didn't get that night against Liverpool. So you had that night where that you at a high level you did the business and you know that's a that's a brilliant thing to have in your career I think. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I look back at it and obviously it, when I was a kid, it wasn't all about money. It was about, why do you want to play football? Because I love football. Whereas yeah. Now you go, why do you want to play football? And you go, well, I want a Ferrari and I want a big house. Um, yeah. Swimming yeah. and you're saying that that's, if you, if you get into football for them reasons, it's, it's more than that. Well, it is the wrong reason where I just want to play football and I, 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 although I never played at the dizzy heights of the Premier League, I appreciate that I still played, I think, around 500 games in, in total and managed to score a few goals. And with each team, I had my own memories that will stay with me forever. And I, sometimes yeah. I go, I can't, I can't remember what I did last week, but if you talk about specific games or name certain games like you have done today, straight away I go back to, yeah, I remember that game, I remember the feeling, I remember how exactly. it was. Yeah, it's just been, I've been very, very fortunate. Yeah, and looking back uh, on your career, you played for some teams with, you know, uh, some real soul about them with some really passionate fans, Hull, Oldham, Wrexham, like Cobblers. Um, and probably, if I speak to fans of all those clubs, they probably all say to you that you say to me that you're that sort of player that fans respect because you're a wholehearted, an honest sort of player and you never really caught it attention or wanted to be a fan's favourite, but you ended up to be really popular at you know, your clubs just because you just put the shift in when it needed. So, yeah, fair play. I think it was one of those, thank you, it was one of those where I knew I was never the most skillful. I wasn't the quickest. I wasn't the best at anything. But I knew yeah. for their reasons that I had to run through brick walls. I had to try and be as fit as I possibly could be. I, I could never back out of a challenge because I, I don't understand why you would do. I would never back out of a header out of anything. So, for all the things I knew were deficient I tried to make up for it with the things that I knew I was good at and again I, I loved loved being fit I, I loved running all night long I loved tackling I love heading it's it's not the the beautiful side of the game but it's what I loved and what I knew I was better at so that's just what I tried to do exactly are you still are you, do you still play the odd bit of football in there or are you sort of more content just to watch it on telly yeah it's more cases I'm more happy on the golf course because it doesn't cause me as much pain um, but every now and again I will play a charity match um, here there and I've played one for Oldham before I've played a couple for Wrexham um, but yeah do you get the odd bit of pain in your knee then do you like some like chronic injuries yeah absolutely so it's one of those where I, I, I can last um, the last game I played I played about 80 minutes and it's one of those where before the game I, I, it felt sore and you do the game and then afterwards it's sore <clears throat> but during the game it's okay and I can live with that if I can get a bit of time and again it's seeing people that I've not seen for 10-15 years playing football with them going how are you just saying how are you doing and just smiling because we've played at a professional level we knew each other for a reason um, enjoying memories that we had from years gone by and then playing a bit of football and 
not how the enemies are in any good shape anymore, but it's one of those where it's good to get together, good to get on the pitch, and every now and again we do something good and we can still pass it or still head it. So I yeah, think football's overrated beyond 30 anyway. I never played to the level you, you played at, but when the, the younger kids start really running rings around you, I think that's the time to like just call it a, call it a day and then you can just start with uh, sidelines like criticising them. That's exactly. It's so much easier. And that's why I love commentating. <laughs> so, yeah. You don't have to actually go up against these these young, like really fast players. There's a lot of fast players like these days. So what are you do, what you're, you're involved in a completely different industry now to football, aren't you? Yeah. Um, when I finished Football, I moved back up to Manchester and I went into digital marketing, um, but it was on a business development kind of role. Uh, and now I'm currently working for an accountancy, but again, on a business development kind of role. And I think it's kind of been brought through my personality and the way that I love meeting new people. I love, so when I started my job at my old club, uh, club <laughs> at the old company, they would say to me, we're going to send you to a networking event. And I'd be like, brilliant. I'm going to meet a load of people. I'll speak to them. Don't care what they do. I'll find out. And yeah. I just, I didn't have to, I would never say, oh, I'm, I used to be a footballer. In fact, I hate that. And if you speak to anyone at work, they know the only way I get embarrassed is if I speak about my footballing days. Cause yeah, yeah. Just weird speaking to the guys about football. So it was all about networking and getting to know people. And for the last however many years of my career, I always, I always remember if there was anything on a school or a, a hospital or we needed to go somewhere and have someone from the club represent, I would yeah. say, let me go, let me go, because I, I, I actually worked in schools briefly after finishing football and doing coaching sessions and mentoring sessions, and I absolutely loved it. And just being involved with people. The uh, interpersonal got, side of it is uh, obviously something that you're, you're quite passionate about. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Uh, it just, it's one of those where by the end of my career, I was one of the, when I, I said to you, when I was a youngster at Oldham, we had senior pros that really looked after us. They were a guidance, and I remember words that were spoken to me when I was 16, 17, and I wanted to be that person when I was older. So when I was older, I was like, if we need to interact, if we need to go and speak to the fans, if we need to go to a school where the kids have got special needs, get me there straight away, because if if me being there, yeah. they can kind of take something from it and go, I don't want to be classed as a superstar, but I'm a footballer, so a lot of kids will look up to you. And if you can kind of instill into them, listen, learn your football, practice your football, but more importantly, do your homework first, do your maths, do your English, do whatever you need to do. And then again, yeah. it was around Christmas, going to the hospitals or wherever and just seeing people that you could put a smile on the face. It's just exactly. very rewarding. So did you, uh, would you like, would you like to get back into football at all if you know, an opportunity came up or maybe assistant manager or as a coach or is that something you just think oh, it's not worth the hassle? I don't know. I, th- I think if the opportunity came, because my son, my son's 18 now and he, ha- he pesters me every day. Every time I'm obviously in the Stockport area now, if the Stockport manager's job comes about or the older manager, he goes, just put your CV in. And I'm like, my CV's a little bit different now. I've got like a real job on there. Um, but I've done my coaching badges. I've got up to uh, level three. So I just needed to do the final one. Um, but I, again, it depends what the opportunity is. I kind of feel I'd yeah. love to be in football again, just to be around it and see if it's changed that much in the uh, eight or so years that I've not been playing. Um, but again, even just to go into kids football and try and teach them a little bit of discipline and what they need to do and make sure they know that their education is vitally important because the amount of people who do actually make it professional is 
minuscule. Tony, I think it's about one, even less than one percent of uh, academy players sort of make it in a decent level. So it's, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a bit of a minefield. What your career can it can say is you played at various different levels, from right from schoolboys to, you know, all the way up to Anfield, and that sort of uh, experience is uh, really valuable. And we'd always like to see you, you know, back at Cobblers in, in any way. I know Samo's back in the coaching coaching yeah. the kids but you're always welcome back and um hopefully hear you on like bt radio in Northampton doing some uh punditry and stuff yeah, um, to be fair i used to do it um i said in a couple of se- a few seasons ago there was a lot of teams local to me where i could get down and, and do it but i've not spoken to the guys for a while but i'm always available to do anything like that or come and see the guys at, at the stadium that's absolutely fine so that's not a problem yeah i'm sure there you know i can pass Pass it on that you're around and stuff. But listen, I'm going to wrap wrap up now. Thanks for telling me about your your career and uh, that night at Liverpool. All, all of you guys that were involved, and all the players and the staff and stuff, gave us Cobblers fans, you know, one of the best footballing nights of our lives. So just thank you, and um, I'll I'll speak to you soon. You take care. Yeah, no problem. Thanks very much. Take care. Cheers, mate. Bye bye. Cheers. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.